Hey everybody, so good to be with you this morning. Wow, uh, I needed two things to really wake up this morning. First one was a cup of coffee, and the other one was to be in the room with you guys singing to Jesus. <laughs> My spiritual senses were triggered. When you're in the traffic, you're just like one more person in a city getting from one place to another, and you walk into a room where God is there. You're like, oh my gosh, the person who made the mountain is in the room. Uh, Let me tell you a bit about myself. This is uh, just a selfie. Just hold it up. Now, actually, we've got a professional photographer who didn't charge us, kind man. There are my five kids. I can scarce believe I've got five kids. The, The time gap is two years. Two years, two years, two minutes. The little guys on the right <laughs> popped out. They were twins. We, uh, Julie wanted to stop at three. I begged her for a fourth, and uh, she gave me a bonus one. <laughs> we have been drowning ever since those twins arrived. Uh, I, I, really? <laughs> and uh, and uh, I do write a blog, but it certainly doesn't mean that I'm an expert parenter. I think it's just I'm an honest parenter. I mean, this week I had the job of taking the, I dropped off all the kids at school. They're all in one school. Now the twins are in grade R in the school. And uh, I dressed the twins and I put little white, white vests on them. I thought that looked cool. And uh, as we were climbing the car, the one guy wanted more Rice Krispies. I said, no. The other twin asked, Julie, Julie gave him Rice Krispies. And then I said, no, I've said no to the other kids. So I took it, I put it in my lap, and I said, no, I'm going to just feed fair, fair. They're both going to get it when we arrive at school. So I keep the Rice Krispies in my lap. I'm driving there. Stop, start. Oh, Rice Krispie milk all over my pants. Like, oh, what am I doing with Rice Krispies on my pants? Get to school. The three older kids get out. And then I say, come, guys, get out. And then Charlie looks down. He says, I'm wearing a vest. I'm like, yo, yo. He goes, I don't want to wear a vest. <laughs> so I said, no, you come. And he refused, won't get out the car. I've got one twin and he's climbing over the back seat and I have an idea. You know, you can either use force or you could use sideways maneuvering. So there's the mother walking past. I say, sorry, would you put your head in there and just tell my kids how cool they look with their vests on? So this mother goes, wow, I like your vest. But Charlie sees that it's a setup. <laughs> and they're like, come Charlie, come. And he refuses and then I go, oh. I'm going to sideways again. I'm, you know, uh, so I ring on a doorbell where I know kids live in this house. I've seen them come out. I'm going, sorry, I've got a situation. Could I borrow some T-shirts for my kids? <laughs> Amazing. I mean, this is good parenting. And I come out with four T-shirts. Charlie, which one do you want? None. They're not his. I'm like, Charlie, come on. He goes, no. He's crying in the back of the car. Now we're late. So I'm like, okay, now I've just got to resort to force. So I try to grab him. He jumps to the back. I open the back. I try to grab him. I'm going to get this guy. I grab him and I poke my right thumb in his arm. <laughs> I drag this guy out, crying, totally distressed with his little vest, carry him over my shoulder into preschool. I'm almost crying. Distressed dad, distressed kid. Amazing preschool teacher comes and hugs him and makes him better. And after, I'm like, can you also hug me? But she doesn't. Just got to, you know, pull myself together and start the day. Anyway, that's just a story from Friday. No, that's not even in the blog. That's just what happened in the last two days. <laughs> Let me tell you uh, what I want to speak to you about today. What's so amazing about Jesus? What's so amazing about Jesus? I often think about the simple scene of Pilate uh, standing before people saying, look, I find no basis for for no charge against this guy. And it's a half-hearted attempt to try to save Jesus' life. The crowd starts chanting, crucify, crucify. And uh, Pilate says, okay, take him, take him. At that point, Jesus should have slipped off the pages of history. Thousands of people have been crucified. Here's a guy and nobody getting crucified. Once you get killed by Rome, you're a nobody. You know that 2,000 zealots had been crucified near Jesus' home when he was a kid. As a little kid, he would have walked out and there would have been thousands of people hanging on crosses. I wonder if even as a little kid, he knew that would be his fate. Nobody remembered the names of those zealots. And yet, amazingly, and this does amaze me, is that 2,000 years later, the humble presence of this man that's about to be crucified towers over the skylines of human history. I mean, one historian says, I'm not a believer, but I must confess that this penniless preacher from Nazareth is the very center of history. I mean, Jesus Christ is easily the most dominant figure in all history. Another historian chimes in 
as the centuries pass, the evidence is growing that measured by his effect on history, Jesus is the most influential life ever lived on this planet. I mean, quite remarkable, a guy about to get crucified turns out to be this particular person that is the reason this church exists. I finished up uh, 20 years with Common Ground last year, and in the last three weeks, I had one more assignment. Every year I'd write a devotional commentary for the church to read, and I wrote one about what's so amazing about Jesus, a 30-day exploration. And each day, I basically explored one more thing about Jesus that amazes me. And, uh, and when I got asked to speak here, uh, this last week I was walking around praying. My wife's parents own a lovely restaurant and a wine farm in Crude Constantia, and I get 40% of my coffee there, so I'm forever working from this particular coffee shop. And, uh, and, and I just knew I've got to speak about Jesus. You know, when you can't, what should I speak about? Ah, oh, I know what'll work, Jesus. And then, and then I had this idea, God, of those 30 things, which three, because preachers all know, you've got to preach three points, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, three points. I mean, love, faith, hope, love, it's just three everywhere you look in the Bible. And, and, I, and I prayed. And it was one of those wonderful moments where I asked a question, and within minutes, I felt like I got an answer. And I want to speak to you today about three things out of a potential 30, but three that I felt that, that came to the top of the list as I was praying about what to speak to you about. So here's the first thing that amazes me about Jesus. I'm amazed by the kinds of people Jesus calls. I'm amazed by the kinds of people Jesus calls. Let's, let's read Mark chapter 3, verses 13 to 18. I've got it on the screen. Jesus called those he wanted, and they came to him. He appointed 12 that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. These are the 12. Simon, whom he gave the name Peter, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, which means sons of thunder. You know, groups of dudes hanging out together, you give each other nicknames. Hey, Boanerges, and that name took. One day Jesus called him that, and everybody started calling those two Boanerges. <laughs> Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, another James, the son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, Judas Is Iscariot, who betrayed him. Of course, uh, up front, nobody knew that, that he would be the traitor. Hey, why 12? Why not 13? Why not 11? And uh, we need to realize that Jesus is choosing these 12 people as the vanguard for his movement. Now, in the Old Testament, there were 12 guys who were the sons of Jacob who turned out to be the vanguard of the people, uh, the people of God, Israel, the 12 tribes, the 12 patriarchs. And the story of the Old Testament is quite sad. As they, these 12 tribes grow, they become a, a vast nation. But uh, centuries before Jesus comes, 10 of these tribes fade away into non-existence. By the time Jesus comes, there are only two tribes left. The people of God are a mess by the end of the Old Testament, the part of the Bible written before Jesus comes. When Jesus calls 12, he's saying that he's reconstituting, reorganizing the people of God under his leadership. I mean, it's quite amazing. These will become, he's giving people a chance to become part of his outward-facing people in the world. And why does he call them? Well, we read it very clearly in those verses. Two reasons. Firstly, he calls them that they might be with him. Jesus needed partners in his work. He needed friends in his life. In one place, he describes them as his new family. He even says, you're my, my mothers, my brothers, my sisters. And before Jesus asks us to do anything, he asks us to be his friends. And then the second reason he calls them is that he might send them out. He might send them out. You see, Jesus knew that his time is short. And he had a vision to reach the world. And he would train them up to be his hands, his feet, his mouth when he returned to the Father. Fascinatingly, one of the ways Jesus is described in the Gospels is that Jesus is a rabbi, which means a Jewish teacher who would take disciples to himself. In fact, it was common in Jesus' day for a Jewish rabbi at the age of 30 to select several young men that he would train, he would teach. 
And uh, in fact, what would happen is that these men would actually come and choose their rabbi. Jesus is a rabbi, the difference being that he actually chooses. He doesn't wait for people to come to him. He says, I want you, I want you, I want you. In fact, at one point he says, you didn't choose me, I chose you. And then when we read the Gospels, uh, it's clear that Jesus may have had some kind of connection and relationship with at least some of these 12 before he eventually calls them. But in each case, he eventually says, come, follow me. And so was his magnetism that just these few words, people would come undone and, and, would, and, would, and would follow him. These 12 included two sets of brothers, James and John, and then Peter and Andrew. And uh, these guys were all fishermen. And when he called them, they all abandoned their family business. Ironically, on the very day that they'd got their biggest catch ever, a catch that Jesus had allowed them to bring in. Imagine that on the day of your greatest success in your career, you, you, know, you give up your career. Hey, what kinds of people does he choose? Well, I noticed a few things. Firstly, notice that, that he chooses a, div, a diversity of people. A diversity of people. To be fair, there are four fishermen in there, okay? Uh, but there's a lot of other variety. I mean, you've got Simon the Zealot. A zealot was an insurrectionist who basically defied Rome and wanted to overthrow Roman power through, through violence, through physical force. And then you've also got Matthew, who was a tax collector who basically worked for Rome. You know, he would collect taxes, and the deal was that as much as he could get, he just needed to give a slice to Caesar, and the rest he could pocket. So you've got somebody who's, who's totally for Rome, somebody who's totally against Rome, now they've got to live side by side. See, Jesus teaches them that following him involves the challenge of loving people very different to themselves. Yeah. In fact, Peter, at one stage, asks uh, Jesus, how many times exactly must I forgive my brother? Turns out that at least one of these disciples really got under his skin. And Jesus says, and he says, like, seven times? And Jesus says, 70 times seven. And uh, I, one of the things that's always struck me is that you can choose your friends, but you can't choose your family. And if the church is not a selection of friends, it's a family selected by God, you often land up in a life group where there's at least one person who you definitely wouldn't have chosen to be in their life group. <laughs> I mean, there's at least someone in your life group that just irritates you so much. There's always one person like that in the group. And if you can't think of who that person is, <laughs> but this is the way Jesus planned it. Notice also Jesus chooses unpromising people. We sometimes think about Jesus as talent scout. But the exact opposite is true. In fact, uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are the four Gospels in the New Testament that, that tell us about the historical details of Jesus' life and ministry. And uh, there are people that have given their entire lives to researching the historical credibility of these documents. I mean, are they made up? How much history is there? And I've always been a fascinated student of this particular field. There at least one strong evidence that you can trust these documents as sources of history is the surprising data we learn about the early church leaders. You see, if the Gospels were propaganda, where you got guys like Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John starting a new religion, as some skeptics would suggest, inevitably they would make themselves look pretty good. They would never do exactly what they do, make themselves look like total disappointing dimwits. I mean, it's certainly bad PR for the cause of Jesus. When you read about the followers of Jesus, I mean, think about James and John. Uh, they're starting to follow Jesus. He has the one who will pray, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And yet, when they go into a town that declines them hospitality, James and John say, hey, Jesus, let's call down fire on that town. And yet, that's in the, that's in the Bible. And in fact, later, their mom is hanging out and they beg their mom, Mom, go to Jesus and ask him to give us the top two positions in the kingdom. And these details are in there. I mean, nobody puts his foot in his mouth more than Peter, though. He tries to discourage Jesus from his life's work. He interrupts Jesus at crucial moments with nonsense speech. He swears he will never, ever let Jesus down. 
Again and again in the Gospels, we find Jesus deeply frustrated, rebuking his disciples for their dullness and their lack of faith. In fact, in his final night before his death, he asks his closest disciples to stay awake for his sake and for theirs. And what happens? They fall asleep. (laughs) Where when he needs them most, he's most vulnerable. And when he's arrested, Peter panickingly chops off a servant's ear, flees for his life, denies his association with Jesus three times to another servant, and finally locks himself indoors. They tell you one thing is evident. Jesus does not call the worthy. (laughs) Rather, the, the one who calls slowly but surely makes unworthy people worthy. Hey, on this idea, he, does, he also doesn't call the equipped. Rather, he equips them for the call. I mean, certainly one of Jesus' happiest moments where he's elated and we're told he's full of joy is when the disciples return from their first mission trip without Jesus around. And they share reports that many lives were touched and changed. And Jesus seems to, throw, to draw greater thrill from seeing a ragtag of losers becoming portals of heaven's power. Isn't that encouraging? That if Jesus were to call people today, he's not a talent scout. He takes us as we are, unimpressive. And he doesn't call the worthy, because who in this room is worthy? He doesn't call the equipped, because who in this room is equipped? No, no, as we respond to the call slowly but surely, and sometimes it takes much longer than we would have liked, he makes us worthy and he equips us. Notice also Jesus chooses people who stay open to his grace. And if you know the story at the end where Jesus is crucified, at least two people badly let him down. The one is Peter who denies him three times. But a little bit worse is Judas who actually betrays him for for some money. And uh, Judas is remorseful after Jesus is, is, is crucified, but he seems to be unrepentant, and it dawns him what he, what he has done, and he accepts in his mind the logical conclusion, the logical, what he, what he deserves for what he's done, and he takes his own life. Uh, uh, Peter has also really dropped Jesus. The difference between Peter and Judas is that Peter somehow is intercepted by the grace of God. Peter actually wants to bail on the whole Christ-following thing because he feels so bad about how he's let Jesus down. And so Jesus intercepts him. Peter is humiliated but still open to Jesus' message of grace and forgiveness. And it's so important that we are held by grace. We stay open to grace. You don't come into the kingdom by deserving it. You come into the kingdom by grace. And I don't know what failures are trailing behind you today. I don't know what devastation that maybe you had a, had a role in playing in your own life. If you would stay open to the grace of God, you'd be amazed what Jesus can do with your life. And notice also that Jesus chooses people who are held by conviction. I mean, despite these disciples' unpromising start, they do eventually get the job done once Jesus returns to heaven. I mean, John, who is called the son of thunder, Boanerges, calling down fire, his life is so radically transformed, he becomes known as the apostle of love. And then Peter, whom Jesus first helped catch an enormous bunch of fish, later denies Jesus to a nobody. And yet because of Jesus' grace in his life, he later tells everybody about Jesus and in the first public church meeting, pulls in a catch of 3,000 lives at the Jerusalem church. And as this nascent church spreads, they suffer In fact, of the 12 apostles, only John is spared finally from martyrdom. Church tradition, for example, tells us that the brothers Andrew and Peter were both crucified. Andrew in Greece and Peter in Rome and Peter apparently upside down. And we have to ask ourselves the question, what conviction lay hold of them? What could transform a group of shivering shaking, terrified men who were denying Jesus even to a little servant into this radical force field of people who were willing to die prematurely, prematurely and far from home. 
I mean, what could explain their transition into men who would stand up to authorities, to scourging, to imprisonment, to execution? All they have to do is just say, renounce your claims about Jesus, and they'll live, and yet they're willing to die. And the answer isn't too hard to get at. Peter's sermon, his first sermon, is summarized in this word, in, these, in this sentence. This Jesus, God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses. Bottom line is they follow Jesus. To their shock and horror, he was crucified. To their amazement, he rose again from the dead. And they couldn't deny that. And that became their primary conviction. And apart from that experience of resurrection, there is no historical ex explanation for the explosion of the church in the history of the world. And when Jesus calls us, he means to reveal himself to you, and then you be held by that conviction. You be held by that conviction. So that's the first thing that amazes me about Jesus, the kinds of people he chooses. Hey, the second thing that amazes me about Jesus that I'd love to speak to you about today is that I'm amazed by the moment of his, for lack of a better term, liftoff. Liftoff. I don't know if you've yet read the Gospels. Perhaps you're not a Christian. I'm so delighted you're here today. But if you were to read the Gospels, you would know that there are key events in the life of the ministry of Jesus. There's his baptism, his temptation, his transfiguration, his trials, his death, his resurrection. By far, the most, the most spoken of ones are his death and his resurrection. We forever in the church of Jesus speak about his, the cross and the empty tomb. I think that an unsung part of his story that I'd love to talk to you about in the next few minutes is his ascension. You see, 40 days after Jesus is resurrected, he literally lifts off the ground. Let me read these verses to you. John 16, verse 7, Jesus says to his disciples, unless I go away, that's what Jesus is doing when he lifts off the ground, he's going away. He says, the helper will not come to you, but if I go, I will send him to you. And then in Acts 1, it says, Jesus says to them, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and to the ends of the earth. Isn't that amazing? Jerusalem is very far away from Milnerton, by the way, and Jesus has been good on his promise. 2,000 years later, there's a community who, are, you know, the, the, the word got down to us, the ends of the earth. I mean, that's, we are the ends of the earth. We're the bottom of the African continent. Only New Zealand is like further afield. I don't know. If you want to go up in life, I don't think New Zealand is your next step, just to those of you who are contemplating. <laughs> I've got so many friends there. You can start a life changes and a common ground in New Zealand nowadays. Eh? After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid, them, hid him from their sight. So yeah, you've got 40 days after his resurrection, the Son of God returning to heaven. Acts 1 tells the story of Jesus disappearing from their sight, leaving behind his dumbfounded disciples who look like little children who've lost their parents. Two angels are then sent to calm them and ask them why they're still looking into the blank sky. And I think we're meant to sympathize with the momentary stun being experienced by these disciples because they are witnessing the moment, a, mo a very critical moment in the life and the mission of, of the Son of God. No longer will Jesus walk upon the earth as one of us. From the moment he lifts off, his headquarters will be in heaven at the right hand of the Father. If you don't know the Bible, but the simplest way I can explain it is the Old Testament is the part of the Bible written before Jesus began comes in anticipation of his coming. Then you've got the New Testament written after Jesus comes, but the New Testament is divided perfectly into the first four Gospels and the first chapter of the book of Acts. Speaks about Jesus on the earth, present on the earth through his body, and then from Acts chapter 1 till the end, it speaks about Jesus present to us through the Holy Spirit. Those are the key moments, and that transition moment, very important. See, the Jesus of history which we can learn a lot about, thank, thank these gospel writers, becomes the Christ of faith. 
They're the same thing. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. It's amazing. These disciples first know the Jesus of history. They eat with him. They listen to him talk. They see his miracles. They see how he interacts with his enemies and with the vulnerable and, 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 in, and in tricky situations. They, are, they know the Jesus of history. Now they know the Christ of faith who is high and exalted. But things are going to change. After that, the average person who comes to faith in Jesus is first going to encounter the Christ of faith when they hear the gospel preached in the power of the Spirit. As, as people are hearing about Jesus being preached, Jesus himself makes an introduction to the person. You get to meet the Christ of faith. Then you go, I need to find out more about the person I just met. And you immerse yourself in Jesus of history. It's kind of flipped around. They first had the Jesus of history. Then they come to know the Christ of faith. We come to the Christ of faith. Then we're going, I need to find out more about the Jesus of history because they're the same person. But the point I want to make here is that Jesus went up because there's important things that he is doing right now. It's true that Jesus did some important stuff. He lived, he died, he rose again. It's true that he's going to do important stuff. One day he's going to come back and wrap up human history as we know it. But I find that Christians tend to be shallow on answering the question, what is Jesus doing right now, mind you, right here? And I want to provide four answers. Firstly, Jesus is ruling the universe. In, his, in Peter's first message to thousands of Jews in Jerusalem, he quotes a psalm about the Messiah. He says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Hundreds of Old Testament verses are quoted in the New Testament, this one more than any other. The central idea we need to know about Jesus is that he's sitting down at the right hand of the Father on a throne and all of his enemies what he rests his feet on. Jesus, right now, is ruling the universe. I know that it often feels like the world is out of control, and let's be honest, there are powerful forces of darkness at work in the world. The Bible is not naive about this. They won't always be around. Jesus ultimately will defeat them. But already now, Jesus is in control, and that simple fact is the reason we can relax in the fact we're not in control. Uh, Julie and I have been part of Common Ground for 20 years. God has called us out of Common Ground. Uh, we imagine stepping out of the boat of Common Ground into another boat, our next assignment. But God instead led us to step out of the boat, walk on water, and then God will show us what the next boat is. We're right now in the middle of water walking. Mind you, we've only got limited funds to walk on water. This, this can't carry on too much longer. We're halfway through. And... Uh, and to, to keep on trusting that God is going to look after us. It's very exciting, this life of faith. And it's completely unnerving. But the unnerving part is what drives us back to the chaos. I mean, back to, sorry, back to the, the crisis. Either Jesus is real, in which case you can relax, or he's not, in which case panic. It's a choice you make every day of your life. So, so he is ruling the universe. Secondly, he is building his church. Amen. Jesus promised, I will build my church. Amen. He's been good on that promise, by the way. Four million churches on, on planet Earth. You guys just pushed it to four million. It would have been three million, nine hundred, you know. <laughs> now, let's be honest. We might at times be embarrassed by some of these churches. But Jesus never gives up on his church. And there are real obstacles to the well-being of churches. I mean, you know the story. There were four or five churches started in Milneton over a period of five to ten years, of which only one or two are remaining. So there are real obstacles, but Jesus will still be good on his promise. I will build my church. Ephesians 1, God placed all things under Jesus' feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. The reason this church exists is not before, because a few leaders at a church in Tableview said, hey guys, we should really get the life changer's name out there, we should start more churches. No, back behind that conversation and supporting whatever intention came out of that conversation is Jesus' great promise, I will build my 
church. And it's always good to remember whose church it is. I planted a church. Ten years I led it. It grew fantastically. It was my church. And then one day, I'm out. What the heck just happened? The church is still going? It was such a good lesson for me to learn. It was never my church. It was always Jesus' church. Praise God for leaders. Leaders are servants in the church that belongs to Jesus. Hey, what else is Jesus doing right now? He is praying for his own. Hebrews 7. He is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to pray for them. He will never abandon us. He's praying for you. I love that people pray for me when we're in times of need, but let's not forget that the reason people pray for us is because the one who is praying for us in heaven is tapping the shoulder of some people on earth and saying, join me in praying. And even if nobody responds to the tap, there is somebody praying for you. One powerful example of this is when the first martyr is being killed. We're told that Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and saw Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Stones are busy being flung at him. One is about to hit him in his cranium, he's going to die. But he gets out the words and he tells people what he is seeing with with the eyes of his spirit. Stephen's time of greatest need, Jesus is compassionately standing to his feet, ready to reach out to and receive his dying disciple. Usually we're told Jesus is seated on a throne, but sometimes the, the, the acts of trust in his servants so move him, he gets to his feet. And he's on his feet, and Stephen is about a transition from this earth to the next. And we get a little glimpse. And there are times when you have felt so alone, and you felt like your prayers are bouncing off the ceiling. But it's not true. Somebody who's attentive to you, who knows your needs, who cares about you, cares about me. Hey, what else is Jesus doing? He is sending his spirit. I mean, the one who has gone up has sent another down. Before ascending to heaven, Jesus promised a replacement for his presence on earth, the Holy Spirit. He said that this would be even better for us, better than his physical presence upon the earth. But how so? I mean, why, how could it possibly be better to be living in Milnerton and to have a relationship with Uh, an invisible Jesus who's in heaven, compared to 2,000 years ago living in Jerusalem, having a relationship with Jesus on earth. How can this be better than that? Well, at least two ways. Firstly, the Spirit internalizes Jesus' presence. The Spirit internalizes Jesus' presence. You see, Jesus on earth stood alongside his disciples, but now he can live inside of us. We can know Jesus more closely than Peter and John ever did in those years that they tricked alongside him through Israel's towns and countryside. In fact, 10 days after Jesus' ascension, the ragtag church of 120 were praying in an upper room in Jerusalem when the Spirit was finally and wonderfully poured out upon them. So ecstatic were they that onlookers asked if they'd been drinking. Peter stands up and he says, no, no, this abundant joy you're seeing is not because of alcohol. It's only nine in the morning. Now, what's happening here is that the promise God made to Joel in the Old Testament is coming to pass. I will pour out my spirit on all people. So, So these guys are experiencing Jesus inside of them, not just next to them. But I tell you what else, the Spirit doesn't only internalize the presence of Jesus, the Spirit universalizes the presence of Jesus. In those days, if Jesus is in Bethsaida, the only way you could experience Jesus is if you're in Bethsaida. Uh, If Jesus then relocates to Jericho, the only way you're going to experience Jesus is if you're in Jericho. Amazingly, since Jesus has gone up to heaven, he has multiplied his accessibility So that that no matter what your longitude and latitude, you can have access to Jesus. And mind you, millions of people all at the same time. There's a famous uh, Norwegian explorer called uh, Ralt Amundsen. And he used to, he used to, uh, he explored the North Pole. And uh, 
he'd leave his wife behind and, and just terrified that one day he wouldn't return. And mind you, one day he didn't return. <laughs> but on one occasion, he'd gone up to the North Pole. He says, honey, what I'm going to do, I'm going to take this homing pigeon. And when I get to the North Pole, I'm going to release this homing pigeon. And, uh, and he's going to, it's going to fly down to you. And you're going to know that I'm, that I'm in the North Pole. And uh, one day, the wife is outside in Norway. And she's busy hanging up her washing. And something catches the corner of her eye. And there's this homing pigeon circling above her head. And she starts shouting, he's alive, and he's on top of the world. If you read Acts chapter 2, that's more or less what Peter is saying in his sermon. Listen to the words. Jesus, exalted to the right hand of God, has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. See, see, they saw him lift off the ground, and they go, he said he's going to the throne. We hope he gets there. How are we ever going to know? They know when the dove comes. He's alive and he's on top of the world. You see, Jesus ascending to heaven was like a rocket blasting open a big hole in heaven through which the Spirit would descend. So that's the second thing that amazes me about Jesus. And looking at your faces, I see similar amazement. (laughs) Third thing that amazes me about Jesus is that he gives us his name. He gives us his name. Christians. Christians. My first many years of being a Christian, I called myself a Christian. Then I noticed I lived in a country where a lot of people called themselves Christians, but they weren't Christians. I was just confused. It's It's like you've got to fill in some religion. Not Buddhist, not Muslim, not Jewish, not atheist. Christian. And I quite liked calling myself a Christ follower to distinguish myself from nominal Christians. But after 15 years of calling myself Christ follower, I quite like the thought of calling myself a Christian again. It's like I, I walked away from it, it's come back to me with a freshness. I think our culture has changed. I think that there are less nominal Christians now than there were 15 years ago. And uh, in fact, the other day, little Ivy at dinner table, at dinner table, they got speaking about what we like about someone, and she said she wanted to speak about what she likes about her dad, my little my little seven-year-old daughter. And she says, "I like my dad because he is kind, and because he's a Christian." <laughs> I'm like, "That's good taste in boys, Ivy. Good taste in boys. You remember those two words: kind, Christian." Acts chapter 11 verse 16, the disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. In fact, they didn't call themselves Christians. There was a church in Antioch, and the people that peered over the walls to find out what this community was about realized that this community was very excited by a person called Christ. And they went, you guys are like little Christs, Christians. And the name took. Uh, Jesus called his disciples many things. He called them his sheep, his friends, his brothers and sisters. We're often called believers. The most common name in the New Testament is disciples, used some 256 times. Acts chapter 9, Christians are called people on the way, or the Nazarene sect. That would be a cool name for for a church to come, the Nazarene sect. (laughs) But then there was one name which would end up being the most popular name, Christians, Christians. And uh, let's just think a little bit about what it means to be a Christian. And, and probably you could do a whole series of sermons on what that means. But let me just say a couple of things that are front of mind for me. Firstly, a Christian is amazed. Not amazing. A Christian is amazed, not necessarily amazing. Sometimes if you are a Christian, and maybe you're considering becoming a Christian, I'm really excited for you. Maybe today's your day. Uh, but... When you become a Christian, you're like, oh, okay, I need to be an amazing Christian. And we often tend to think that the person who preaches, you know, is an amazing Christian. Or there's something that tells us that, that there's ordinary Christians, and then you get super Christians. They, and your goal is to, is to be an amazing Christian, not just like an ordinary Christian. But after a few decades of following Jesus, I realized, no, no, we're all just ordinary Christians. We're not meant to be amazing. Well, that is pretty cool if you can do great things with great love. That's pretty amazing. Great things with great love. But mainly a Christian is somebody who is not amazing. A Christian is somebody who is amazed. So that everything you do as a Christian 
going to church, reading your Bible, praying, serving the poor, saying no to temptation. Everything you do is not because you're trying to be amazing. Everything you do is because you're amazed. And then your whole life flows out of this grace-stunned heart. Probably the most important question we can ask ourselves if you are a Christian is, what are your, your amazement levels? What are your amazement levels? How much are you stunned by grace? Because when that starts going, things start getting smelly. You know, in our culture, the new age Jesus is quite popular. Uh, different religious groups and spiritual groups all claim Jesus, not just Christians. And uh, so a lot of people will say, you know, I also believe in Jesus. Um, I believe, very popular this Jesus I'm describing, the new age Jesus, I believe that Jesus was this man who realized 2,000 years ago that he was divine. And he shows us to do the same. So we can look at Jesus, we can be inspired by the man who realized he was divine, so that you too can realize you're divine. That's kind of missing the point. Because the Bible says the main thing about Jesus is not that he shows us how to be amazing. The main thing about Jesus is that he is a savior. In other words, a savior is somebody who does things for us that we could never do for ourselves. You know, Jesus, the night before he is crucified, he is introducing his disciples to communion. Dark red juice equals the blood. Broken bread equals his broken body on a cross. And he's handing out the sweet cup of salvation, saying this cup is for the forgiveness of your sins. And he hands out this cup, and then just a few hours later, he's in the garden, and he's saying, Father, take this cup away from me. You see, the reason he can give us the cup of salvation, which is sweet, is that he was willing to drink the cup of the Savior, which was bitter. Effectively in the garden, he's saying, Father, is there any other way by which people can be saved? Heaven falls silent. The answer is no. Jesus knows that if he saves himself, we will not be saved. Jesus does for us what we could never do for ourselves. He lives the life that we should have lived. He dies the death. We should have died. And the first Christians are cup drinkers. They drink the blood. So that actually in the history of the church, we know that the community that surrounded the church often tried to fault find things with the church. And one of the ways they attacked the church is they said they're cannibals. They keep on drinking blood. That's what Christians were accused of. Of course, it was just trying to come up with dirt that wasn't there. But it's true. Christians have always drank the cup because the cup speaks of the Savior who did for us something we could not do for ourselves, and we remind ourselves that the cup is sweet for us because Jesus drank the bitter, the bitter cup of the Savior. We're amazed. We never stop needing that cup. I'll tell you what else a Christian is. A Christian is somebody who has a live connection to the living Christ. A live connection to the living Christ. Standing in a vineyard, Jesus compares his disciples to branches plugged into himself as the vine with grapes growing on them. And Jesus' point is that Christian is somebody who is grafted into him, plugged into him. You see, we don't only, we don't only have a connection to his teachings. You get whole religions that are built on, let's just rehearse the guy's teaching. Mind you, we don't, don't only have a connection to his deeds, his salvation. More importantly, I argue, we have a connection to Christ himself. The fact that Jesus rose again from the dead tells us he's alive. We have a living connection to a living Savior. The Bible is the best book in the world, bestseller of all time. It's just that good. And uh, we, we, we read the Bible and we learn so much about Jesus but the Bible is not God's only gift. We also have Jesus himself. God first gave us his son, and he gave us his spirit. And then, if you know the history of the church, they had the Old Testament scriptures, but only after 30 or 40 years of church life did they start collecting the documents which would become the New Testament. And we need to remember the order, because God is saying, I'm giving you the documents, the New Testament, but first I gave you the Spirit. I gave you a living connection to Jesus himself, and then I gave you the guidebook. book. 
I'll tell you why that's important. It's possible, it's not that common, but it's possible to be a person who, who restricts Jesus to the words on the page. In other words, as long as you know the Bible really well, you reckon you know Jesus. It's so important to know the Bible really well. You can know so much about Jesus, even as you read the words about him, he can jump off the page. But that's my point. He can jump off the page. If the universe doesn't contain God, this, this book, as important as it is, tells us about a hero and a grand subject, subject who is alive and present to us. We're not just reading a book about a person who lived. We're reading a, a book about a person who is right now, right here, reading us. So I didn't downplay the Bible. I'm just saying Bible plus Jesus, not Bible is Jesus. Hey, to be a Christian, let's be honest, it carries a little bit of responsibility. I mean, I remember the story of Alexander the Great, you know, this incredible conqueror. Actually, not so incredible. He was a total power monger. And, uh, and, uh, and there's, a, there's somebody that, that flees in a battle. A little 16-year-old boy, first time that he's fighting in the war. And Alexander calls him in. He says, you fled. The boy is quaking for his life. He says, what is your name? My name is Alexander. My mom named me after you. He freaks out and he goes, change your name or change your behavior. <laughs> I'm not saying that Jesus is going to kick us out. But it, we need to remember, we carry a name. And we think about in our country, what a serious stuff up happened when people who carried his name perpetrated a massive injustice. Apartheid, defended in the name of Christian doctrine. We carry a responsibility. If you have the name of Jesus, you've got to think, well, how's that gonna, how's that, what's that going to look like in terms of the way you live? You see, we give our all to Jesus. If I understand right, first he gives his all to us in salvation. Now that we're saved and we're amazed, we give our all to him in discipleship. And when you read the Gospels, one thing that strikes you is that, yes, he speaks to the crowds, but as the ministry gets on over the three years of his public ministry, he starts to prefer time with one-on-one, -on -one, small groups, forever going into the mountains with his disciples, pressing them to, to full understanding, to full surrender. Think about Jesus' teachings. You cannot serve two masters. Forsake the love of money and the pleasures of the world the world has to offer. Deny yourself, serve others, take up your cross, lose your life to save it. The first will be last. The meek will inherit the earth. Rejoice in persecution. It's better to give than to receive. Turn the other cheek. That's Jesus who presses us to surrender our all. And not because he's trying to ruin our lives. He says this is life at its very best. That's why Christians are not meant to pick and choose. See, we live in a day of customizable spirituality where we take little bits of what we like and we leave out the parts we don't like. Everybody nowadays is trying to build a customizable approach to life. But the moment we accept Jesus, the final and definitive revelation of God, we no longer do that. Jesus being the master of the universe is not someone we co-opt for our ends. Rather, we take him as he, as he is, we lay everything down, and we reorganize our thinking, our values, and our lifestyles around him. He is the blazing sun around which the planet parts of our lives revolve. All your relationships, the use of your body, the use of your time, the use of your money, your thought life, your habits, the way you deal with conflict, all of it revolves around this blazing sun. Hey, one of the ways nowadays that's so popular is people take Jesus, but they disregard his church. We notice especially that Jesus has no vision at all for solitary followers. I mean, he calls John, Peter, Thomas, and Nathaniel to follow him together. That's why the moment he ascends to heaven, John and Peter and all the disciples group with other followers of Jesus in faith communities given to enjoying and spreading the fame and the salvation and the message of Jesus. And I'm speaking to the choir right now, but I know we all got some friends that call themselves Christians, who trust in Jesus, but somehow have removed themselves from local church communities. 
And that's the case of pick and choose, isn't it? Our money revolves around Jesus. You know, we'd think Jesus would have a lot to say about heaven and hell and prayer and faith, and he does. But he has so much more to say about the use of our money. 16 of his 38 parables, he speaks to money. Money has a power that can, can promise to be our savior. It can't really save us. It certainly can be dominant and be our Lord, governing our decision-making. Jesus says, don't sink that low. Come to rescue you from a false god. And then as, as we have Jesus in our lives, we let Jesus rub off on us. I mean, he, Acts chapter 4 the very men that had crucified Jesus, says that when they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and took note that these men had been with Jesus. They had killed Jesus. They thought they'd got rid of him. And now these faith communities are coming up called Christians, and they are so like Jesus. They are forgiving towards their persecutors, but they have got backbone of steel and they stand for conviction. Now remember, Jesus reserved some of his most acute criticisms for his disciples because they so failed to be like him. And yet after he's gone, we start to see it's worked. Little, little bits of Jesus are rubbing off on, on these disciples. And I'm struck as a person who's followed Jesus for a long time. How many years it really does take for Jesus to, to rub off on a person so that in most situations they're going to give a Christ-like response. We let Jesus rub off on us. There's something about us that is like Jesus. Kind to start. Kind forgiving, courageous in the right ways, merciful. Last night I was having dinner with a friend and he walked in and he came and he greeted all the little kids by name, hey, 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 hey. And then afterwards he's telling me, he says that every room he goes into, he realizes the society has always had a pecking order. You've got the top dogs and then the lower dogs. And so it happens that you know, adults are up here and kids are down here. And he says whatever room he walks into, he, he realizes that if he is higher up on the social ladder, he just spots everyone who's, who might not have that same sense of privilege. And he goes to them and he greets them with dignity. And he says all he's doing is just lift, lifting everyone up, lifting everyone up. I just love that little description because it's something that you could do tomorrow. Whatever room you find yourself in, if there's some people that for whatever reason society makes them feel like they are slightly less important than you, you turn that upside down. You go to them. You don't wait for them to come to you. You go to them and you lift them up. You let them know how important they are. Beth Moore, uh, I don't listen to her stuff, but I found a cool quote on social media yesterday. She says, there's a few things about Christ-like manhood it's fierce enough to fight for women. Christ-like manhood is bold enough to want a woman in Bible class. It's safe enough to be alone with a woman. It's muscular enough, muscular enough to scatter a crowd of men ready to stone a sinful woman. It's brazen enough to send a woman with the good news. And Jesus modeled this amazing treatment of women. I think the church is meant to be famous for producing men that lift up women. Famous, producing men that have a way of protecting and lifting up and dignifying women. One of the things I've reflected on is there have been times in my life when I'm in a church and it seems like the men stand taller than the women in the kingdom of God. I've just been thinking that can't be right. I think the women are meant to stand as tall as the men in terms of dignified kingdom bearers. I'm not saying I've seen it here. Okay, we're right near the end here. What else does it mean to be a Christian? To be a Christian means we receive his power from on high. We receive his power from on high. Uh, by the way, I don't know if you know this, the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts are written by the same person, Luke, and they're actually meant to be like, a, you know, back to back. And the book of Luke starts off with Jesus being endowed with power from on high as the Spirit comes on him, and he, and he does this amazing ministry of delivering people and spreading the gospel. Then he goes up to heaven, and immediately the Spirit comes down upon the, the, the early church, and they have got now endowed with power from on high, and they go around delivering people from darkness and preaching the gospel. 
And uh, there's a little promise. Jesus says in Luke 24, he says, wait in Jerusalem until you receive power from on high. And recently, for the first time, just when you think you've studied the Bible for decades, you think you've seen the big things. For the first time, it dawned on me, power from on high, the only place in the Old Testament that that is, comes into connection is when Elijah, who is this amazing prophet who moves around in the power of God, has got a successor called Elisha, and he's about to go up to heaven, Elijah, and Elisha's friends say, we've got a feeling Elijah's going up, you stay near him. And Elijah just follows Elijah everywhere. And one day, Elijah lifts off the ground, goes up to heaven. Elijah stands underneath, and a cloak falls from the sky. The cloak of power from on high. And he puts it on, and he's got the power. And when Jesus says, wait in Jerusalem until power comes from on high, he's speaking about a succession. He's saying that the way that Jesus moved in the power of the Spirit, serving people, delivering people from darkness, bringing about the kingdom. The church now continues the work of Jesus. You've got the cloak of power. It doesn't happen instantaneously. In some ways, you, need to be, you might need to be prayed for for the infilling of the Spirit. You might need to learn the gifts of the Spirit and how to use them. But isn't it exciting that Christians get to continue the work of Jesus? Where his hands, his feet, his mouth. And then the last thing I want to say is that a Christian is somebody who has a growing awe for Jesus. Friends with this guy who's... An outstanding theologian, his name's Derek Morphew, and he's just written a 500-page book, which I've proof-edited, um, called The Kingdom Reformation. I was talking to him, I think, I think he's about 60 now, I'm guessing, and, uh, and, he's, and, and he says, you know, Terran, I've followed Jesus for decades now. He says, Jesus has just got bigger and bigger. I love that. I love that. I hope in the coming decades, Jesus gets bigger. Hey, have you read Chronicles of Narnia? C.S. Lewis's book, Prince Caspian, is one of them. And and in this book, Lucy enters Narnia again. She hasn't seen Aslan. Aslan is a type of Christ for a long time. And then they're wonderfully reunited. And Lucy says, Aslan, you're bigger now. And he replies, Lucy, that's because you're older. You see, Lucy, every year that you grow, you will find me bigger. My prayer for you, for this church, is that God would open our eyes and our heart to see Jesus bigger and bigger. Can I ask you to stand? Can we have the band on the stage? Can we pray? Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for your presence with us. It's quite amazing to not only preach about you, but to preach about you in the presence of you. It's the coolest thing. The coolest thing happening in the city of Cape Town. It's groups of people gathered in the name and in the presence and the powerful movements of the Holy Spirit that that are directed by Jesus. God, I thank you for the existence of this faith community. How exciting that they've planted another one in the city. God, we pray for great favor and success upon these faith communities that bear the name of Jesus. May they spread the fame of Jesus, the life of Jesus, the message of Jesus. Mind you, while we're praying, I'm mindful that there might be some people here that are maybe new to church or back in church after a long time. Maybe you arrived here not so sure what you believe about Jesus or you're sure you don't believe in him. Well, you used to believe in him, but things just went pear-shaped between you and him. And as you're here today, it dawns on you that you aren't here by accident. This is your appointment with Jesus. This, is, this was scheduled in heaven. And that you're experiencing Jesus reaching out to you, calling you home again, or maybe calling you home for the first time. And you know who you are because the Spirit of God right now is working in your heart and your mind, shining a shaft of light on you. Uh, you can't manufacture that. That's the work of the Spirit. And if that is you, I would be so honored if I could just pray a prayer with you of trusting Jesus. Can I ask everyone to close their eyes? I'm not going to call you to the front. I just want to know where you are and I want to pray for you. And if that's you, you sensing Jesus saying, today's the day that you come home or come home again. And uh, I'm going to ask you in a few seconds just to put up your hand as your way of saying that's me. One, two, three, lift up your hands. Wonderful. Anyone else? Wonderful. Wonderful. Praise God. Anyone else? 
Praise God, praise God. How exciting. Anyone else just sense Jesus reaching into your life? Wonderful. Okay, you, you could put your hands down. Can I just guide you in a simple prayer? Hey, what about everybody praying this prayer aloud with those that will be praying this, maybe for the first time? Okay, so just to encourage these guys, a simple prayer of trusting in Jesus. Here we go. I'll give it to you a line at a time. God, thank you that you're real. Can you pray that? God, thank you that you love me. Can you pray that? Thank you, that you, love me. Thank you for sending Jesus, who died and rose again. Jesus, I trust in you. Forgive my sins. Live in me by your Spirit. Teach me to trust you. Teach me to follow you. I receive your mercy. Amen.